Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. He says, and let us consider, keyword, consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Good examples, good deeds. How what we do and consider ways that you can do something that would have the effect of spurring another on toward love and good deeds. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. While good deeds don't earn salvation, they are important to our Heavenly Father. As Pastor J.D. discusses today, we are to encourage others to love, goodness, and generosity by our own actions. We don't do these things for our own benefit, but for God's kingdom. Let the work of our hands and feet bring glory to God. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of this broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. with his continuing study called Money and Giving. Let's get started and get into God's Word. On Sunday mornings, and it's been a couple weeks now, we're going through Second Corinthians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We completed chapter 8, like last year, uh, literally, right? And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 9, and we're actually, Lord willing, going to finish the entire chapter today. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is writing to the church in Corinth, and verse 1 says, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But, verse 3, I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given." Remember this, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that In all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food 
will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Today's teaching is going to be part four of a series I've titled Money and Giving. Now, chapter nine is a continuation of the Apostle Paul addressing the Corinthian Christians about their giving financially in order to help the impoverished church in Jerusalem. And what we know to be true about the church in Jerusalem is that it was made up of Jewish believers in Christ. These were Jews who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the result of doing that was they lost everything. They had counted the cost and it cost them everything. Their families, their livelihood, their jobs, their businesses, everything. And this is why, for the most part, the Jerusalem church was so impoverished and in such need. Paul had not only written to them about the Jerusalem church in the previous chapter, as we saw in chapter 8, but he also mentions it at the end of his first epistle in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. He says, now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, this was, by the way, Sunday, (laughs) on the first day of every week, which is when they would assemble, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Interesting, he's going to allude to this again in chapter 9, as we're about to see. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. In the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 29, we have yet another reference to the impoverished Jerusalem church. It says, The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Now, why do I take the time to provide this backstory? Well, the reason is, is because it's going to be germane to our understanding of the context in which this chapter, chapter 9, is written. Absent the understanding, there's certainly the potential for misunderstanding. Some suggest that Paul is misunderstood here because of uh, what one has called his sanctified sarcasm. And there's a little flavor to that and a taste of that and a hint of that in how he says to them right out of the chute, there's no need for me to write you, but 
I'm writing you. (laughs) You made a commitment a year ago, and I have to follow up with you so that you'll make good on this commitment. He's sort of, um, in a sanctified way, shaming them via his sanctified sarcasm, which I've personally come to appreciate about the Apostle Paul. He was very blunt on many occasions, and it was needed on those many occasions. The Corinthian Christians simply had not yet followed through on a financial commitment that they had made one year earlier. And Paul is reminding them of that, saying to them, you promised that you would give. Now this is why Paul is writing them again. He's reminding them again of that which they had promised to do. And what I find interesting is it's not so much that Paul does this. I mean, we come to expect this from the Apostle Paul. It's not that he does it, it's the way he does it. And what I mean by that is he brilliantly, by the Holy Spirit, focuses more on the blessing of giving than he does the giving itself. And so what we're about to see is that our giving blesses first and foremost the Lord. It also blesses the Lord's people. And then certainly, as we're going to see, it blesses us as well. I want to say one thing before we jump into the text. There's only one place in all of the pages of Scripture where God declares, test me. The only place in all of the Bible where God says, I want you to test me in this. In what? In the tithes and offerings. Here's the test. Test me. Well, wait a minute. We're not supposed to. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God, right? Well, this is the exception. This is the only time, the one time, that God says, I want you to test me. Well, what's the test? We're going to test God? Yeah, test me. Just try, as we say here. Try see. (laughs) Sorry. My wife says, don't do that. It just doesn't work for you. (laughs) You'll forgive me. (laughs) Test me and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on your life that will be so immense, so vast, so big, that you're going to try to figure out how to handle all that God gives in return. It's been said that we can never outgive God. And that is certainly true. There is a blessing that comes And the first one is in verses 1 through 5, and it's that our giving blesses and, perhaps better said, ministers to the Lord's people. In verses 1 and 2, Paul tells them that he really shouldn't, and this is where the sarcasm is, he really shouldn't have to write them about this, but he is anyway. And it's concerning the ministering, to the Lord's people, but he does so, he says, because their enthusiasm had actually, maybe unbeknownst to them, stirred up the majority of other believers. 
And in verses 3 and 4 he says, he's sending brothers in order that his boasting would prove true so that no one will be ashamed of his confident boasting. In other words, I'm going to send the brothers there. Please don't let me down. (laughs) Please don't let me eat my words. And then in verse 5 he says, he's doing this so that the gift they had promised to give would be ready as a generous one and not one grudgingly given out of an obligation. In other words, this was a get to and not a got to. They were doing this of their own volition, willingly, gladly, joyfully, and even cheerfully. Paul is touching on a very important principle in telling them their willingness and eagerness to give had both blessed the Lord's people and ministered to the Lord's people, but also it had stirred up the Lord's people as well. Now, the reason I see this as a really important principle is that, and it's sad because it's one for which we as Christians oftentimes either totally miss or worse yet, completely dismiss. It's that of our example. I don't know if you ever see it that way, especially when it comes to giving. Now, I realize and I am keenly aware that we're not a church that receives an offering in the formal, traditional way where we have ushers bring the plate or the bag or whatever it is and pass it out to receive the offering. Now again, nothing wrong with that. When I first moved here to start this church, the Lord had really impressed it upon my heart that we would not do that. Not again that there was anything wrong with that, but that I wanted the church to be a church that would give willingly and cheerfully of their own volition. So we've always had, for 13 years, 12 years, going on 13 years now, we've always had this box on a folding table (laughs) at the old church, and it's still here. (laughs) So one of the unintended consequences of that is we don't really get a chance to see people worship the Lord with their tithes and offerings when you pass out the plate or the offering bag. Now, you do sometimes see people that will go back there and they'll put their tithes and offerings in the agape box. But have you ever thought of it this way? That they're setting an example? They're setting a good example? This is the important principle that Paul is touching on here. You know, when (laughs) we had our first service in here, one thing I had anticipated and noticed was that when we see people worship, we worship. And with this sort of, uh, you know, where the old church was just long and narrow, you know, kind of like my sermons, <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> this is the... <laughs> So you guys over here, don't look at them now because it would be awkward, but uh, you can see them when they're praising the Lord. And they can see you when you're praising the Lord. But when you see people worship, it has this effect on you, and then you too are more likely to also worship. And is not 
our tithing, our giving, our offerings a form of worship? Yes, it is. So too does this set the example. When people see people giving, people are more likely to give. And this is what Paul is talking about here. I think that our example can have a profound and powerful influence on other people. And it works both ways, whether it's a bad example or a good example. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 10, verse 24. He says, and let us consider, keyword, consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Good examples, good deeds, how what we do, and consider ways that you can do something that would have the effect of spurring another on toward love and good deeds. It's interesting to note that Paul would tell them to have their financial gift ready as a generous one and not as one grudgingly given out of obligation, as one translation renders it. It's interesting because by having it prepared in advance, Paul would not have to then pressure them to give out of compulsion or obligation. Upon Paul's arrival, he does not want to have to deal with the offering. And think about that. (laughs) The Apostle Paul's personality was probably intimidating. And he knew that just by the sheer force of his temperament and personality and even presence, it would have the effect of putting people in this position of, hey, I better give Paul's here. He doesn't want that. And I love that about Paul. He wants the sole purpose to be when he gets there to minister to God's people. He wants that taken care of. I have to say, in all candor, that one of the things I love about not receiving an offering, first of all, I'm very uncomfortable when it comes to talking about money. I always have been. And I don't have to unless we're at a place in God's Word where God's Word deals with money. And that's the only time I really have to deal with money. The only exception was when we were finishing this beautiful church building that God enabled us to uh, build. But I don't have to talk about it. You're never going to see a thermometer up on the screen. You know, this is our goal. Uh, You're never going to have a pledge card (laughs) where you have to pledge and obligate yourself to giving X number of dollars a month, that as long as God gives me breath and I have the privilege of being the pastor of this amazing and wonderful church, that is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. I want our attention whenever we assemble ourselves together. I want our attention to be focused solely on the Lord and His Word, that the Lord would minister to us. Well, he didn't want to create that kind of a dynamic. So he tells them, I want it all ready so that there's none of that awkward, uncomfortable dynamic when I get there. 
And there's another reason why I'm doing that. It's because God loves a cheerful giver. And to me, this reflects the heart of God. And would you not agree that God is the ultimate cheerful giver in what he gave us? And Paul's going to talk about that again here shortly. He's going to reference the example of the perfect gift. And it's an indescribable gift. And that is our example, by the way. We should never compare ourselves to what others do or give. Well, I give more than them. How do you know? (laughs) How do you know? I might want to ask the widow about that in the temple that day that Jesus pointed out and drew the disciples' attention to. Our example is always the Lord when it comes to especially our worship in giving. Alan Ridpath said this, When God gives grace, he does not reluctantly open a little finger and maintain a clenched fist full of gifts. I would tell you today that God's hands are nail-pierced hands and they are wide open. This fountain of grace is always pouring itself out with no limitation on heaven's side at all. I think of what James wrote. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. He does not withhold anything. If it's a good gift, he will give it liberally, abundantly, not with a clenched fist or grudgingly. He does it gladly, cheerfully, happily. Well, this brings us to our second one of verses 6 through 10, which is that giving brings an abundant blessing to us as the giver. Now, while this should never be why we give, it is the result of when we give. In God's economy, this is how God has ordained it. In verses 6 and 7, Paul uses the analogy of sowing sparingly or generously and reaping accordingly. And then he says that, again, God loves a cheerful giver, which implies that God does not love it when we give grudgingly or we give out of compulsion or we give under pressure or we, or we give when it's it got to. God does not love that type of giving. That's all we have time for today on In Spirit and Truth. If you'd like to listen to today's message, head to InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and click on the Listen tab. You'll also have access to a number of other teachings by Pastor J.D., as well as his weekly Aloha Prophecy Updates. You can download our mobile app to take these teachings with you wherever you go. Learn more about In Spirit and Truth and Pastor JD at our website and also on Twitter. We'd love to have you join the conversation there. We'd also love to meet you in person as well and would like to invite you to join us for our weekly services here at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. We gather each Sunday at 8.30 and 10.45 a.m. and also on Thursdays at 7 p.m. 
and you'll find more information at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Just click on Calvary Chapel Kaneohe at the bottom of the page. Before we end today, Pastor J.D. has an encouraging word to share with you. It is such a blessing for me personally to be able to share God's Word with you on each edition of our In Spirit and Truth radio broadcast. Also, I'm so very thankful that you've tuned in to listen. The book of 2 Corinthians provides us a much-needed reminder of how divine power is realized in our human weakness. Sadly, though, this is not a popular topic today because, as one so aptly said it, the gospel does not ride on health and wealth, but on weakness. The ministry of the Spirit is not one of splash and flash, but of meekness and weakness. It's for this reason that 2 Corinthians has become one of my favorite books in the Bible. Not only does it provide us with the key to living victorious Christian lives, it also provides us practical application concerning how we treat other believers in our lives. It's my hope and prayer that you will be as encouraged and blessed by this book as I was. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again for another edition of In Spirit and Truth Radio. 